going to look today at the issue of how people respond to Jesus. Maybe you can think about that for yourself a little bit. How, how do you respond? How was your first response, perhaps, to Jesus? The concept Jesus, the person, the reality. What about your friends? When it comes up, when Christianity comes up, when even the person of Christ himself comes up, what are those responses? Hans Urs von Balthasar, who is a great Roman Catholic theologian, once said this, Jesus Christ is the concrete universal. You see, the question I'm asking is not simply about this Jesus in an abstract sense. What I'm really asking is, what happens when it becomes concrete? That is to say, when Christ, the Lord, is concrete, as to be a universal Lord in a personal way. You see, until we insert that idea of lordship, I suspect the response is pretty Eh, nonchalant, or perhaps favorable in certain ways as an ethical system for the world, a good man. But when Jesus Christ is the concrete universal, which means it breaks into our lives as then being real and having real consequences in our lives, well, what are those responses? Would there be rejoicing? Or would there be concern or even terror? Today, we re-engage Matthew's gospel. The gospel which, of course, began with this amazing introduction of, of a genealogy of kings, if you will, bringing us to the birth narrative of a savior king, one who is presented as is fulfilling the expectations of Thousands of years waiting and hoping and praying for this this kind of superhero figure, this messianic concept that somewhere, sometime, someday, the God of the universe will break into this world and make things better and save us from all this curse that we see in the world around us. And so the genealogy survey establishes this long history of desire by the coming, for the coming of the kingdom of God. How then would the people of the day respond? Matthew's selection speaks volumes about Matthew's gospel. For we have then the first account by the writer Matthew of the responses the world had to Jesus, the Messiah, the king, and actually It's not one response, but it's three responses. We see and encounter the response of Herod, the Jewish scribes and priests, and the response of these foreign nation magi. Taken together, we will learn a lot about what we should expect in the world. And even we will take home a self-reflection honestly reflecting upon our hearts, asking which response do we really live. But let's ask God to meet with us as we come to encounter Jesus Christ, 
the universal Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do need you. We will discover that there's much in us that would resist the response of the Magi. That would resist the response of of delight, of submission, of gift-giving. And so, Father, speak into our hearts. Convict us of sin, even if we are surprised to discover it. And we pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, with the onslaught of Christendom, that is, when Christianity became a kind of social power or influence accepted generally, with that came all sorts of additional, let's say, myths. Of course, they become distractions, unfortunately. And so there's much about this story that particularly in the time of a Christmas season, well, can take us off track very quickly. Very quickly, before we really look at the seriousness of this story, let me just address a few things that I don't want to get in the way here. First of all, these three kings of Orient, you know, that's the song about this story that we sing every year. Three kings, no evidence whatsoever of it. Not even the number is given. It's assumed by three gifts, but for no reason. Other traditions, the Syriac church, for instance, held to there being 12, king, uh, 12 people. Well, it doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. That's a distraction. As you're going to see, by the way, these Christendom distractions have a way of actually hmm, distracting us from the point. What about these kings of Orient? Who are they? Well, where does it say kings? It doesn't say kings. We've already said that. The Greek word is magoi, plural for magi. We three magoi are, with the way the song should have gone, but so who are these people? Well, let's start with the traditional term of the Orient. Well, yes and no. It's true that the text says from the east. Literally, it would say in the literal words, from the rising of the sun. And thus, the Orient, insofar as generally applied to east, might work. However, the Greek word magoi is more precisely a probable reference to members of the priestly caste of the Zoroastrian religion, or philosophy. And if this is true, which most believe that it is, the Zoroastrian priest, more precisely from Persia, which was an ancient kingdom situated in what we now know as modern-day Iran, and would have also involved and included territory in modern-day Tajikistan and northeastern Afghanistan and southern Uzbekistan. So you've got that general region in your head now. And as priest, well, this is significant, very significant. These would have been wise men, scholars, but more priests. But as from the context of the Zoroastrian religious context and theology and scriptures, well, there is something very that makes sense now. They would have believed, for instance, in a supreme and personal God, addressed as Ahura. By the way, you get that in Star Trek, don't you? The Lord creator and 
And this, this God, if you will, is proclaimed that there is only one God. Sound familiar? The singularity created and sustaining force of the universe. Just as important, they would have shared in the Jewish messianic expectation. So close was the association with Jewish Christian messianic theology that, well, that esteemed journal The Onion notes once, news headline. Under pressure from scholars who for centuries have pointed out strong similarities between certain aspects of the two religions, Zoroastrianism and Judeo-Christian, God finally admitted Tuesday that he had stolen the idea for the Messiah from the Zoroastrianism and used it as a major feature of the Judeo-Christian tradition. Aren't we glad to know that? Actually, what we'll discover in this story is quite the, the, the opposite. You remember the Magi, when stumped with where to go, went to the Jewish priest to find out. I suspect they had derived it from that tradition. And so you have this messianic figure, almost identical to the Jewish belief, with the same sort of idea of a singular God, Lord of the universe, in the backdrop of this story with these foreign nationals, not members of the Old Testament Church of God. Again, as part of their religion, these priests paid particular attention to the stars and gained an, an international reputation for their astrology, which was at time not considered myth, but astrology which would have been a highly intellectual and, and, and sort of academic sort of field of study in that day. It would be almost like modern science today, if you will, in the way that people believed in astrology as a means of discerning truth and reality. Their religious practices then and the use of astrology later led to Christendom's England applying the term magi to the council, to the occult, in other words, the magic. We get the word magic from it. And yet it can also refer to wise men, if you mean by that, for instance, in the King James Version, that's how it's explained, the Magi are decided as wise men. But if you mean by that, wise according to astrology, wise according to the tradition of Zoroastrianism. And so to be sure, the Zoroastrian priests are in Matthew representing the great and universal desire for salvation of the world as supreme and personal God in breaking into this universe, making things better. I just want to stop there before we then get into the search. Matthew is making a point, which we in this room, I think, need to hear really clearly. He does not present Christianity. None of them do as something that the world, whether they understand it or not, aren't yearning for. I would give anything if that would sink into your heart. I believe very deeply our passivity, our lack of initiative, our lack of impulse to boldly proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord is at least partially rooted in the fact that we honestly don't think people care. 
we honestly think that people aren't interested. There's so many narratives that tell us that. The one most relevant is the fact that we see the world increasingly disinterested in church. By incredible numbers from a percentage point of view, people are turning away from the church. But what are they turning away from, really? Are they turning away from that which these Zoroastrian internationals outside of the church of God were yearning for in search for the Messiah, however it can come? We make messianic saviors out of just about everything if you would just look again. Everything is made into Messiah. Family, home, university, nationality, economic Wall Street or Main Street or everything's going to save us. See, that's the problem, as G.K. Chesterton said. When we, when we have no single God, then everything becomes God. If only we as Christians had the ears to hear and to see what Matthew was saying, that your friend, your colleague, is thirsty, is hungry, is looking for that which will change their world. They really are. That's the point of Matthew. And presenting this grand scheme genealogy, this grand scheme birth narrative, and now we see that even those on other nations, under other religions, underneath their religions, is this universal hunger, this desire for Jesus Christ to become a universal concrete reality, as Balthazar has said. And so that brings us then finally to these gifts. The response of the Magi, of course, would be the gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, yes. There are all sorts of theories concerning their meaning, generally they break down into all sorts of groups, but basically it's this. What we see is a conclusion by the Magi of conversion. We are brought to conversion. Isaiah 63, we heard it read. We even sang about it. Did you notice? I did, we didn't plan that, Trevor, did we? But we even sang about it. But nations shall come to your light, the kings to the brightness of your dawn. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall proclaim the praise of the Lord. Matthew has this prophecy in mind as it reminds us that the nations want what we have. They want it. It's for us now to discern that they want it, how it is that they manifest that kind of want and desire, and how then to present Christ into the vacuum of all those artificial substitutes for Christ. So now we get to this idea. The central question that drives the whole passage 
is this. It's the one that I've already introduced in kind, but now here it is in verse 2 in concrete form. The question that drives the passage is where is the child born king of the Jews? That question thrusts a narrative into all sorts of directions, three specifically. Herein you see ensues the search to find the Messianic king. And to be very clear, the search of Jesus was not mere search for some domesticated baby. It was the search for a savior king. Now this is important. You see, what we search for will, of course, determine a lot about how we react when we find it. It starts to get personal here. If we're searching for a domesticated baby king, therefore a king that is powerless over our own self-autonomy, our own lordship, if we're in search of a king that would, would come after and would usurp that status quo of our lives that's that's allowed us to feel comfortable in our lives without our God being our king. Well, we're going to be very disappointed. In fact, we might just be terrified if what we encounter is not a baby Jesus, but a universal, concrete Lord. And so look what happens. The passage will expose these three different uh, desires as related to the single question, where is this child born to be king? The Zoroastrian priest is one response. Herod is another response. And the scribes and the, and, the, and the priest are the other response. First, let's look at these magi. Their desire to find the king of the Jews in verses 1 through 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, magi from the east, from the rising of the sun, came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. The search begins in a far away place. Again, in a far away place from the place of the church of God, which is focused in the epicenter on earth. In Jerusalem. This king of the Jews was destined to bring in the nations. We've been told that over and over in the prophecies, and Matthew is particularly interested to show us that. Under this incredible spiritual reign, this scene sets into motion the expected pilgrimage of all the nations, all those outsiders of the church of God, even, who will pour into this messianic reign. And kingdom. You see, secondly, the prophetic privilege is related to Matthew's gospel will culminate in the great commission in Matthew 28. Go you therefore out into all nations is the way it'll start. This is where it began in the gospel, according to Matthew. These magi star, the extent and limit of it, note only this, that they got the only the time, not the place. It was limited. Their tradition was limited. Whether this is a, a concept that you would put under common grace revelation or natural revelation, 
which has become a religion today under natural science, or whether you'd put this under the construct of other religions, all of which may have some elements of truth to them. Remember, we believe that as Christians, that there is an element, an elements, I should say, of common grace, of a common revelation, a kind of revelation from God that is to all people of all faiths and none, that there is revelation out there outside of the Bible and even outside of Christ. It's in creation. It's in God's providence. I can sit down at the table with a Zoroastrian and learn something, as I could with a Buddhist, as I could with a Hindu. We should be humble that way. And yet we should also acknowledge, even according to our own confession of faith, but also here in the scripture, that, that it was limited. It can't get you to the salvation. When we speak of the exclusivity of Christ, what we're really saying is the universality of Christ. I don't ever use that word exclusive, because it really isn't what it's about. It's the universality of Christ. Christ is Savior, Lord of the whole world, the whole universe. As applicable to us as to anyone in the world, there is no distinction, neither Jew nor Gentile, Greek nor slave, all that. And so here we have this incredible statement that, that here we have these priests who have something of the hunger, something of the knowledge that the solution of this world is that the creator God would break into it somehow and change it. And now, according to their own traditions, they have seen evidence of this, but they don't know where it is. You see, according to their own prophecy, we're told how it is uh, that they believed in their own tradition that somehow there would be some cosmological event revealed in the cosmos that would tell you that this one sin of God has come. And in the stars they saw it but they know not where. It's interesting how in Numbers 24-7, it predicted this very thing. I see him, says the prophet, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Matthew surely is hearing the prophet's voice become a reality. Think about today, how your friend, how our world sees him, but not now, not yet. How they behold him and desire him, but he's not near, nowhere to be found. Would that give you greater boldness to step into their consciousness in life? The Persian priest purposed to pay homage to him, we're told. The word there is to worship or to wonder. So now think about this. A people outside of then the church of God of another religion are here presented as having a desire to find the Lord, the Messiah, the King, who would come from the Jewish nation, but who would be the universal concrete reality of their hopes, desire. Then we come to Herod. His search for the king of the Jews, but now what was it? What was he desiring? What was he hoping for? Scene two. That brings us to the second scene. 
Now we find ourselves not on some lofty hill out under the skies with the Zoroastrian priests, but now we find ourselves in Jerusalem, which was the religious epicenter, of course, of the Judaic religion. It was also an economic and political center of the Jewish Roman citizen, now under Roman law. Herod the king, declared by the Senate of Rome in B.C. 40 to be the, quote, king of the Jews. That was his title. He was appointed under Caesar to be the king over this group of people who lived in this region called Jews. And so the king of the Jews got word from the Magi that the king of the Jews had just been born. What's going on here, do you think? Well, a coup. There's something that's going to challenge my lordship. That's the point you're going to want to see. This was a great king. Among his achievements, was he was the president of the Olympics. Amidst Roman civil wars, he had dreamed of founding a new eastern empire, erecting many splendid buildings and including rebuilding the temple in a style of unraveled significance. He did all this by making a deal with the Jewish rulers and authorities, the scribes and the priest. This is what we have here in the situation. We have a privileged and ruling class, both on the civil side and on the religious side, making a deal wherein they both enjoyed great privileges and power as to the degree, listen, that they reinforced and backed each other up, covering each other's backside, so to speak. And so we know, now have that, that this incredible encounter with the Magi, well, what was the response? When Herod the king heard this, we're told he was deeply troubled. And all of Jerusalem with him. Did you notice that? Herod and all of Jerusalem with him. All of Jerusalem, are you kidding me? It's like saying the church of Jesus Christ, the Christendom church of the Christendom world, they were all troubled. The word could literally be translated frightened to death. Frightened to death. All of a sudden, those who saw themselves with Herod as forming a wonderful little compromise that therefore did not challenge the lifestyle of a comfortable Christianity and a comfortable autocracy, if you will, of Caesar as Lord, well, they were terrified. All of Jerusalem with them. Very interesting, isn't it? Not only Harry, but all of Jerusalem were troubled. And what did they fear? The loss of self-lordship. The loss of self-lordship. Jesus is a great idea. Oh, we love him in that little domesticated, you know, manger sweet little Jesus that he is. 
And there's a powerful moment there. We don't, I don't mean to underestimate the incarnation and the fact that he was a baby. God emptied himself of power and became a baby. Powerful thing. It's not mocking that at all. But when we relegate Christ to this domesticated Christ, well, no prob. But when the concrete universality of Christ's lordship is in our face, like it was to Herod, then terror and animosity pour in. This Jerusalem power class of the day, ironically for sure, we're now in bed with the Roman king. Along with the temple rulers and governors who were in many ways now functioning as Roman proxies. Jerusalem with Heron is set by Matthew as antagonistic to Jesus from the very beginning. Incredible, isn't it? How could that be? Herod and Sanhedrin then were afraid, along with, Herod, with Jerusalem, we're told. And so what is Herod's response to Jesus? Well, he seeks to find Christ as well. He takes it head on. That's his response. Different a little bit, as you'll see from the priests and the scribes. He, heads it, he takes it head on. And so what does he do? An assembling of the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and then he quotes uh, two prophecies, actually, but, and you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Notice the rulers of Judah, that you're not least. Jerusalem is the great epicenter of the rulers of Judah. Now Bethlehem has a anti-Jerusalem establishment ruler coming to town. So for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Again, utilizing two prophecies, 2 Samuel 5 being one of them, who is the shepherd, my people Israel, and then Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And so Herod seeks Christ from the wise men, inquires about the time of the star, sends wise men out to find the exact location, but why? He tells them, when you find him, oh, let me know. I want to find him too. <clears throat> and what happens? What does he want to find him for? Oh, it's with animosity and fear. Perceived as a threat to his authority, he desired to find Jesus, but is to defend himself against a competing Lord. It's the issue of lordship, you see. It always is. And in the case here, far from wanting lordship, to those who enjoy their self-power, it was to resist and even conquer Christ's lordship. It's the issue of freedom from any concrete, external to ourselves, lordship. It's the issue of lordship, then it's this driving this thing on both sides. The Magi delighted that there could be truly the messianic arrival. Of Christ the King, the anointed one that is, who is our King. And those who enjoyed self-autonomy and rule, they hated it and feared it. And so here we have this amazing story. The, pre the Magi delighting Herod, 
frightened. And that turns us to the third group, the priests and the scribes. I find this to be the most difficult of all, as did Luther and Augustine and Calvin and all those who've read this passage with us. Scene three, check it out. Indifference. Indifference. And perhaps a lack of desire is what we see. You see, both Herod and Magi were dependent upon the scribes and and priests to actually locate Christ. They had the crown jewels themselves of God's special revelation. They had in their possession the history and the traditions of God revealing himself and his plan. That's like saying they finally got to the people who had the Bible. You know, the Bible. And what was their response? Well, in this sort of uncommitted way, the prophets and the law, they tell us that this Messiah will come to Bethlehem. They knew the word. They knew the word. And yet, they resist the word, the concrete word. They had the crown jewels of God's special revelation, the scriptures themselves that would lead the world to the most important salvation event in history. And yet, like Herod, their authority was threatened, not their, not their civil political authority here, but their moral authority, their religious authority, and their a religious sense of self-righteousness. About these sorts of Jews, Paul in Romans 9, 4 said it this way. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Oh, man, Paul is pulling his hair out. In so many words, if you go back to that passage. He would do anything to awaken these Jews who were nonchalant and resisting Christ. Because of all the people in the world, they should have been most delighted and excited about it. But he says in verse 6, chapter 9 of Romans, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to that Israel, that outward, hegemonic Jewish dumb Israel. There is a remnant within Christendom. It will always be a remnant within Christendom that is the true Christian, just as it was in Jewish day. And yet what is clear by this passage is that the scribes and and Pharisees, I mean, the scribes and the priests, they just were not interested. They just were not interested. It must have been awkward, you know, to see the excitement of the Magi as they sat back in their temple places. Knowing so much of what the Magi wanted, seeing the excitement in their face, they'd traveled miles and miles and defined in themselves. Perhaps they weren't fully in touch with it, but strangely they were being made to feel uncomfortable with the concreteness of this idea of the Messiah. Somehow the Messiah had become comfortable for them within their self-autonomy. 
Just don't challenge the status quo. Don't challenge the way that we've been saying it and reframing it so it's a sweet and comfortable religion. Don't break into my consciousness and and awaken me to the reality that there's a real and horrifying, if not delightful, concrete reality to this lordship of Jesus Christ. Keep it far away. There's a casualness here. There's a resistance here, but it's not, it's more of a passive aggressive versus the active aggression of Herod. So there we see it. The first reaction is utter delight that finally everything they've been hoping and praying for and yet did not know where to find was, has been found through the Jewish scriptures. And then there's Herod using the Jewish scriptures, co-opting the Jewish scriptures as to continue his own civil rule and authority. And then there were the scribes and the priests that didn't want the status quo of their happy alliance with Rome to be challenged. So what's going on here? You see, after introducing Christ through a genealogy and a birth narrative as the king, long-anticipated king and savior of the world, Jesus here is designated by this text as the king from the Jews. Yet ironically received as such not by those the most knowledgeable of the scriptures or those most powerful in the land, but by those furthest away from both. Matthew wants us to know that as it pertains to an encounter with Jesus, not everyone's response will be as we would think. And so here we have it. In summary, this. There's one issue, and it's Christ's lordship. Concrete universality. There's three responses, animosity, avoidance, and worship. On the issue of lordship, our passage wants us to consider how Christ is the only worthy king and lord of the world. William Cavanaugh said it this way, in the absence of any objective concept of the good, sheer power remains. But whose power? You see, keep Jesus in the abstract, keep him this nice, tidy, traditional idea, and it makes room for power. But for Jesus to become the radical reality of the concrete universality, he will cause a reaction. Either terror and animosity, nonchalance and passive Resistance or worship and submission. Psalm says it this way, For the wicked boast of the desires of the soul, and the one greedy to gain curses and renounces the Lord. That's the way it works with lordship. There can only be one. There can only be one. Jesus will say to the churches in Revelations that you're lukewarm. And I've always wondered, but God, that's a little, at least, why would you be so angry at the lukewarm? I mean, be more angry at the cold. But you see, it's the lukewarm that is most egregious. The casual, the nonchalant, those who know enough to respond 
but have kept it at bay from the concrete reality of radicality. I just made up that word. Three responses, one issue. Lordship's the issue. Animosity like Herod, Second Peter says, knowing that first of all that scoffers will come in the last days following their own sinful desires. That is self-autonomy. Animosity and hostility can use all sorts of forms. You need to be aware of this. Don't be surprised. It can be intellectual hostility. Anger against Christ is a false truth, making arguments to refute Christ's legitimacy as a divine and human Lord. It can be a populist hostility. Anger against Christ is a false morality that is popularly concerned as given as intolerance for other lords. I see that most of all. That when Jesus starts getting concrete Lord, the first thing we start to hear is, that's unacceptable. Just this week, there's a girl that was struggling to understand this, and, and she said, I just will never believe this. What exactly? That some will go to hell and some will go to heaven. I just can't believe that. And this other person said, why? Well, because I don't think God would be like that. Sounds really good so far. I'm going, yeah, it does it. Except what? What if? God really is Lord of our existence. And we really have rejected him. You see, at the core of that question is, is that we could somehow be, all of us, I mean, if someone's just, you know, I can't believe that he could send someone good to hell. But of course, it doesn't beg the question, does it? What is good? To love the Lord and to love your neighbor as yourself. And all of a sudden, we begin to see what Paul and the scriptures tell us, that no one is good. We've all rejected God in that fundamental level. So that we need now a kind of salvation that saves us, not from just external lordships, but internal and spiritual lordships. The lordship of my own heart against God. That was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's what we call original sin. It could be financial hostility, using our resources to support our idols rather than Christ. Using our resources in this way because of the heart. You see, the heart of every idol, you know what's at the heart of every idol? That is, we call it a false god, but at the heart of it is it's a god of our own making. Why do you think that's so crucial to lordship? Because if I made it, I can control it. If I make money my idol, then I can work hard and make more money. You see, I control my idol. If I, if, 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 Academics is my idol, then I can work hard and control my academics. And off we go. Politics, anything. The only way to come to God, you see, is to relinquish our self-autonomy. To delight that he can do something that I can't. That saved me and my world. Because ultimately the root of our problem is that we rejected God. Hell is a concept. Now, I know it's a difficult one. I wish I hadn't brought it up because it's one I need to talk about for another hour. But as a concept is that the core of the Bible's realization 
that there is really a Lord with a real consequence of rejecting that real concrete Lord. To reject this concrete Lord is to reject the very source of life itself. And so the scripture says to reject God revealed in Christ is to reject life and bring all sorts and manners of curse upon ourselves and upon our world. We need a Savior. And at the heart of the Savior is that it needs to conquer our soul under his lordship. That we might delight in this incredible and beautiful vision that being right with God, we find ourselves set free from all other lords and therefore freedom I have set you free, says the scriptures. And to be set free from all temporal lords under the one eternal lordship, universal lordship of Christ is actually to walk by grace through faith and not by works of working all of our system idols, you see. And then there's the nonchalant reaction. Again, Luther said it this way about the scribes. The scribes should be a warning to all religious teachers and believers, the family, all. They are told others where to find the Savior, but did not go to them themselves. Augustine said it this way. They were like millstones. They pointed out something to travelers, but themselves remained stolid and motionless. That could be us in this room. Starts off maybe as a youthful zeal, as a youthful crusade maybe, a cause. We learn about it, we read about it, we go to Sunday school, we study it, we know all the answers. Ha ha, you know, we don't, but you know, that kind of thing. But we've lost the concrete reality of it all. The real concrete reality that Jesus is the solution to everything. Really. The universal Lord. And so notice how this passage ends in closing. They come upon a house. We're past the manger now. They come upon a house in Bethlehem. It was probably some time past since the birth of the Messiah. Presentation of Jesus in temple 40 days after the birth had probably already happened. And they've already taken place before this unexpected and ironic visit that would trouble all of Jerusalem. In all possibility, they had already journeyed, you see, to Nazareth maybe. And Joseph seems to have now made Bethlehem his home. And so the scene is of this quiet home in a quiet town, perhaps months after the amazing birth of the Messiah, who is now settling into a normal human existence, and the door knocks. Open, and here come the strange and foreign travelers. We're looking. We're looking for the king of the Jews, for he is our king too. And they rejoiced with exceeding great joy, and they fell down and they worshipped him. Were they saved? You bet they were saved. There is no human temporal limitation with respect to one's identity, origins, or context that is outside the reach of the universally universal, concrete reality of the Savior King, Jesus Christ. 
Paul says that for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord over all, bestowing his riches on all who would call upon him. And so I want to give you that invitation. I don't care where you are. If you identify a little bit down deep honestly with, with Herod and feeling this sort of animosity that, you know, your mind's still working to try to discredit Christ or trying to avoid Christ, maybe more like the scribes that, well, I'll, I'm, I'm happy to go to church and I'm happy to be around all this stuff, but preacher, just don't bring it home in a way that gets too concrete on me and challenges maybe my hypocrisy. Don't do that. For if you do, I will get very angry and very upset. Maybe that's you. And you're sitting here going, God, maybe that's happening in me. Good news. Jesus died for you too. He loves you too. There is no one outside the limits of this incredible power, of this incredible Lord, who can save us from that lordship within that leads us astray. You just got to ask. No one. Maybe you're here and you didn't grow up in the church. You don't have the genealogy of a Christian. You understand the Magi. Somewhere, somehow, you know there was a desire in you just like the whole world and you're in touch with that. I'm looking. I'm striving. I work myself to the bones I've given this lordship to the university. I've given this lordship to the Wall Street. I've given this, this lordship to my politics. And it always lets me down. And it will always let you down. Not because those things are bad things. They're good things. They can even be means of grace things. But they can't be your universal concrete savior. Only Christ can. And so let us come the true response, and worship him. Submitting ourselves to him in our wills, putting ourselves in his mercy, bringing to him all the gifts that I've been given at creation. My money, my time, my mind, my love, my affections. Even as giving it to him will enable us to, to flourish in a way unimaginable because we would be right with God. Amen.